All right. Good morning, everyone. As the offering team's coming, uh, I'll go ahead and bring up the first slide. I want to um, introduce you guys to what we're going to be doing starting next week. This is the first week. I told you it was going to be hard, right? See the title of the first week in our study in James? Good luck with that. You have to be perfect. So but anyway, we're starting that next week uh, on seri- our series on James. Uh, James is very interesting because a lot of people don't realize this, but James is basically a commentary for Christians on how to understand the Sermon on the Mount. There are 12, you'll learn this next week, but there are 12 pericopes. Pericope is a fancy word for teaching area. There are 12 separate teaching areas in James that we're going to break down. Each one is a beautiful description of something from the Sermon on the Mount. It's just going to be, you're going to love how it's all connected, and I'm excited about it. Um, But this week, I was asked by about four or five of you to do uh, a question and answer week for the book of Joshua. So that's what we're doing, and Megan is going to be uh, running the questions. So we've received questions from you. You You know what I really appreciate, Megan, is how some of them gave us questions last night and this morning, so no chance, no chance to prepare for them, so, but I'm a pro, I'm not shaking, I can handle it, okay? So with that being said, I'm, I'm excited about this opportunity, I feel like the book of Joshua is very important in our life of our church family, and I'm grateful for Megan to be able to host this part of this Q&A as we, we finish up that series on the book of Joshua and get ready for James. So did you get the microphone? Did you hand it to me? No, I did not. I didn't get it. <laughs> Here we go. See how that works. What a good team we are. Yes. Sorry, it was here. Yeah. Thanks. Well, at least you're getting the steps in. Look at that, walking around the wall. All right, let's start with that one. Since Which? we just sang about it. The first question, uh, and I love this one, boy. So uh, the question is sometimes, sometimes... Is everybody's cell phone off? Let's just start there. The question is, is your cell phone off? That's the first question. Second question is, sometimes some of the Bible stories seem a little foolish or hard to believe. Example, how God instructed Israel to march around the wall, and then it fell down the last day when the people shouted, even though these stories sound hard to believe, like supernatural, maybe a little insane, And some of my friends, some of my friends think I'm nuts or ignorant or blind. I really believe it actually happened. And so why am I able to believe this story and others like it to be true? Is it because I've been given the gift of faith? And is there anything I can say to people who call me crazy for believing that those walls fell with a shout? So... There is a lot, and we've seen some of that in Joshua, right, with the, uh, with the walls falling down with Jericho and the parting of the river. There's miracles, basically. And so every once in a while, you do get people who don't believe in God and say, how can you read that stuff and believe it? What are you, nuts? And for me, like when somebody usually challenges me with that, my, my response, you know, is um, the stuff that I believe is not as crazy as some of the stuff that the unbelieving world wants to believe instead of God. I've actually had some people in my life who believe in reincarnation. Like, you know, a human can be reincarnated. If they're bad, they reincarnated as a bug (laughs) or a goat. I've had people who believe in that challenge what I believe about stories in the Bible. I'm like, really? Which one's more believable? That Jesus healed a blind man or that you're going to come back a beetle? (laughs) I'm just saying. 
And I think that atheism, in fact, atheism seems to put its trust in many things that are irrational. When you think about them in the terms of history, observation, scientific experiment, and human experience. I just, what I did when I got this question, I just listed some things. Like, atheism will embrace materialism. That means that everything can be explained uh, by physical matter or natural phenomena without the need for supernatural explanations. The problem with this philosophy is it provides no answers to the most important questions that humanity wants answers to. What's the meaning of life? How do I know what is evil and good and right and wrong? These, this philosophy of materialism can't explain why things like genocide is evil or racism. They can say, oh, they're bad, but, but an atheist... An atheist can't rationally believe in the concept of good and evil, and here's why. Those aren't material beliefs. You see that? Good and evil itself is a spiritual question. And so you can say that you're an atheist and believe in good and evil, but you're not a very good atheist because that's not a material thing. That is a supernatural spiritual concept. Humanism, pretending that the most important thing is the focus on human values and concerns of welfare and, and happiness without belief in the afterlife or the supernatural realm. Well, how is that going? That type of concept of, of humanism always ends with things like Chairman Mao and Pol Pot, Stalin, Hitler, North Korea, and in many cases, modern day China. Then there's naturalism. Everything arises from natural properties and causes. But even the most informed atheists, like Dawkins, they admit that, that there is this idea of the anthropic principle, which is this universe. This universe, our particular solar system in general, is designed in such a way that it's completely unlike anything else we can observe or see so it can support life. I love this one. Somebody who doesn't want to believe in the stories of the Bible will, will talk about this idea of secular morality. That is that morality is a human construct. What is good and bad is developed by humans. It's not derived from any deity or, or absolute moral code. It's based on reason or empathy or a societal consensus. So, Let's say that there's an ancient culture that believes that child sacrifice is okay by consensus. Does that make it okay? What if there's an ancient society that believes in ramp rampant human trafficking like the Canaanites believed in or rape? Obviously, this is an absurd position. Just because the consensus believes something is right does not make it right. But you have to take it if you're an atheist. As an atheist, you can't say you believe in good and evil. Those concepts themselves are, in fact, biblical spiritual principles. There's this idea that the universe is indifferent to human existence. Having said all that, I didn't go through those examples just so you can have heated arguments with people. That's not, <laughs> yes, although that's fun. I just, you know, stay off Facebook with that. Um, I want, <laughs> here's the reason I shared those with you. I want you to know, my church family, that believing God's word and his promises is far more rational than anything the secular world can offer. Especially for explanations to why the world is the way it is, morally politically, physically. As for why we can believe these stories, well, yes, by God's grace, by God's undeserved favor, you have been given the ability 
not only to process the world with physical and rational understanding like the unbelieving world does, but we have also been given eyes that see and understand the spiritual realm around us. We know that there is good and evil. We know there are forces of darkness. We see them at work. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest proofs for God is the overwhelming evidence of evil in the world, in my opinion. Some of the stories are incredible, but we believe there is nothing beyond this physical material world that is far more absurd than the believing there is no God. Hmm. And so, yes, those stories seem strange, but what would be more strange is some of the things that an unbelieving world tries to convince us are true. Hmm. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. You can clap. <laughs> no, don't, no, don't clap. <laughs> don't clap. Don't clap. Don't clap. So you've said a couple words in there. We'll take it to the, well, let me say for me, it's, I'm not saying you have to believe it. That's just what I believe, right? It's kind of like what Brian Yost talked about when he was here. I don't, you don't have to believe it, but I'm saying that I do. Right? What sense does it ever get to get into an argument with somebody on Facebook or anywhere else? Unless you really don't like them, then it's okay. <laughs> so you said a couple of words in there that are going <laughs> to lead us to our next question. A couple of words that you said uh, specifically, you used the word genocide. This yes. question says, the battles in Joshua and this was in quotations, and the total destruction of all that breathed is difficult to hear and comprehend, especially in light of what's going on in the Middle East. Truthfully, how the battles played out based on God's direction make this book almost reprehensible. Yeah. Now, I'm not done yet. Okay. <laughs> Do you mean a point when it's your turn? Can you... Yes. So, Joe, Joe, God, why is that so loud? Joe, can you talk to us more about how we can reconcile the warrior God who went before his people in the Old Testament, right? So that's how God was always portrayed in the Old Testament. He was the warrior God who went before, above, and around his people. He was a warrior. Versus our New Testament God who was full of love and grace and mercy who tells us to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek. How do we reconcile these two gods. Yeah, so these are two really good questions. The first one, how can we reconcile the warrior God in Joshua with the God that says to love your enemies? So God no longer, here's what I can tell you in the new covenant, after the cross and after the resurrection, God no longer uses his people or other nations as instruments of his judgment. That's what happened throughout the Old Testament up to Christ was whenever there was judgment needed, he would use an army from another nation or he would use Israel to clear the land. That was the old covenant. We are now under the new covenant. And we learned how in Revelation, when we did our one-year study there, how all of that has changed. Now, instead of God using nations to judge other nations, we see now that the nations just rage against each other constantly. Why do the nations rage, the question is asked. While at the same time, the nations are raging and judging each other and fighting each other, we are God's instrument in the world, not for judgment like Israel was in Canaan, but we are his instrument for proclamation to the world about how the nations, if they want it, can have peace or find peace with God. This is the transition from in Joshua where he says, utterly destroy your enemies to what Jesus says when he says, love them. This is the transition. God has determined that there will be one final judgment and it will be carried out by him, the Lamb of God, on the day he returns. That's why he says, vengeance is mine. And until then, 
Until then, we are to go into the land and take it, but not with the sword, but with the message of the gospel. This is the role of the new army of the Lord. We aren't to go utterly to destroy our enemies. We are to utterly love them with the most important message they could possibly hear. And then the other thought about, about how this book seems almost reprehensible with how Joshua is commanded to utterly destroy the enemy. It can, it can be troubling when you take that concept in a vacuum, right? And we talked about this at the beginning of our series on Joshua. There were some difficult things we were going to deal with. But Scripture teaches us, and we laid this out during the series, Scripture teaches us what these people were like prior to Israel crossing the Jordan to take the land. Do you remember? They were known for infant sacrifices, institutional juvenile human trafficking, sexual deviance and debauchery on a scale that would make your stomach sick today, worse than in many cases today. But here's the thing, though. God made Israel wait for their inheritance, and he said, why? You can't go into the land yet. Why? Because the sin of the Canaanites is not yet full. Instead, what God did for centuries before Joshua and Israel went into the land to clear it, for centuries God sent prophets and preachers into Canaan, into the land, to proclaim the truth. And what did they do constantly? They rejected it. Not only did they say, no, not today, they would kill the messengers. They could have been like the story of Jonah. When Jonah, who did not want to go and preach to the Ninevites, he wanted God to destroy them. Remember that story? I did a series on that, have a book on that. Jonah said, God, just wipe out the Ninevites already. And God said, no, I'm going to give them a chance for redemption. But I don't want to give them tough. It's not your call. And Jonah tried to run, but finally God sent Jonah into Nineveh, and he preached the gospel, and the Ninevites responded with repentance, and they were made whole. The people of Canaan were warned they could have been just like the Ninevites, but they were not. They were given the same warning. It's really the same question that some people have when you say, man, this book sounds reprehensible. It's really the same question people could have. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? Do you see how it's the same? How could God command them to wipe them out? Well, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? Look, judgment is brutal. And just like Paul teaches us, the unredeemed, just like the Ninevites and just like the people in Canaan, the unredeemed are without excuse on the day of the Lord. These nations in Canaan were without excuse. They had been given hundreds of years of opportunity to repent. They could have repented and joined Israel and been part of the kingdom of God. You know, that warning, that warning part is also in the gospel that we are to proclaim in the land, right? That judgment is coming. The day of the Lord approaches. Repent and believe or be judged with the rest of the forces of darkness. But now as we wait for the return of Jesus, right before Satan or God made, God made the Israelites wait, give them a chance to repent, wait. But now we're waiting for his redeemed to come to Christ, those whom he has chosen to become full. This is part of why it's so critical for us to go into the land. There is an urgent message of judgment and redemption that the world desperately needs to hear. Thank you. Any follow-up questions? Kidding. Please no. <laughs> so we're going to mix two together. So remember when we talked about the Gibeonites slash the Hivites? It was in uh, Joshua 9. It said when the Hivites approached Joshua to make a covenant with them, they lied about where they came from. Why did Joshua and all feel bound to the agreement 
and uh, agreement that they made because it was under false pretenses. And then there was a very similar question that said, even though the Gibeonites were delivered from the hands of Israel, essentially they were slaves. So talk to us more about how they're different than uh, Rahab, who she was not only welcomed in, she's in our lineage history too. Yes, so this is a beautiful example of God's grace and mercy being administered in different ways for his purpose. So we know the story of Rahab, and I think I've told you guys, I think for us as Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, the story of Rahab is probably the most important part of the book of Joshua for us. Sojourners who join people of God to worship God on Mount Ebal and doing it here on Mount Lockwood Ridge, that concept, I've been talking about that the whole time. And so Rahab came to God differently because of God's grace. The Gibeonites came to God through deception. So the first question was, why did Joshua feel like he had to keep his commitment even though he was deceived into it? Well, it's a good question. The first answer is this. During that time, your commitment or Joshua's commitment to the Gibeonites was not conditional. It was an unconditional covenant. It is the same way that Jesus keeps your commitment, his commitment to you, even though you don't deserve it. In that respect, the way Joshua and Israel keep their covenant with the Gibeonites, even though the Gibeonites deceive them, the way he keeps it is a beautiful picture of our relationship with Jesus that we don't deserve, but Jesus still keeps his promises. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Now, as far as... um, why were they made slaves? You know, slaves is a, actually, I think I have a note here. I want to make this. Slaves in that sense is kind of a bad word to describe the, the relationship the Gibeonites had with Israel, especially when we think about what slavery was like in our dark American history. It's probably not the best word. The Gibeonites, remember, they voluntarily, happily took on the role as servants to the temple and to the priests. To not be killed. Yes. Yes, well, no, they weren't going to be killed. They weren't going to be killed because they had already made the covenant. And so Joshua said, you will serve the priests. And then they said, yes, we will take that. We will gladly take it. Remember, their deception was out of fear of God's judgment. They willfully served for generations. Get this, even when Israel sinned and was exiled from their land because they didn't follow what God had told them to do, the Gibeon with them and continued to serve the priests even in exile. That group, the Gibeonites, even through the way they came to God, the sovereignty of God's grace comes through because even in that, they somehow found incredible purpose, seeing it as their way, what they've been called to do to serve God. It's strange, I know, but I think of how it compares to how we as followers of Jesus are willingly, this is, and the world can't understand this, just like we can't understand what's going on with the Gibeonites, the world can't understand how followers of Jesus are willing to give up what the world might seem precious so that we can become servants of Jesus. And so the Gibeonites and the the story of Rahab, they're different, but we can see how both of them can play out today and how God's grace and mercy comes in different levels and different forms for different people. The Gibeonites did not come in full transparency, yet God still spared them and gave them life and hope. Rahab came in full transparency, but Rahab doesn't get credit for that, you understand. That is the grace of God working in her life. So... Well, let's stick with Rahab then. We have a few. So I think it's difficult for some people, and frankly, maybe females, uh, to hear that Rahab is referred to as Rahab the prostitute. 
when she was redeemed, she was so much more including, but not limited to being David's great-great-grandmother and in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So why does there seem to be a lack of attention paid to the fullness of her story in God's redemptive plan? And then another question we got this morning was, is there, like, how she came, was it always through faith that she made herself available to the spies? Um, but talk to us a little bit more about Rahab being so much more than just a reformed prostitute. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good question. And I believe... Thank you. I, yes, you're welcome. I believe that the reason that is a good question is because... It's very clear, look, she's called Rahab the prostitute over and over again throughout scripture in the Old Testament and in the book of Hebrews. And I believe that it is an incredible testament to the work of God in her life. It's almost like sometimes when God saves one of us and we say, listen, this is who I was. This is who I am. I know like in recovery meetings, my name is so-and-so and I'm in recovery and I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict or something like that or, or when you are a child of God and, and you fall into sin and somehow God brings you back to restoration and repentance and you are willing to say, listen, this is who I am without Jesus. And that's why, and I believe so when we read that, we think, man, really, throughout eternity, is that the way she's gonna be known? It's sort of, it's sort of like how Paul, in his letters, reminded his readers over and over again, by the way, just so you know, I was one of those who used to kill Christians. He goes, I was, the most, I was the most bigoted religious zealot you've ever seen in your life. That's who I was. And matter of fact, my name was Saul of Tarsus, and I was known for killing people just like you but God saved me and named me Paul. So even Paul talks about his past, and, and I, I can't know this for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm speculating. But I would imagine that Rahab probably had a hand in what she was called. Because I think Rahab in many respects said, look, this is who I was before I met God. This is who I am after. And it's good for people to know, especially sojourners who aren't Jewish, who will come and join God's people to let them know, hey, if there's a place for me here, there's a place for you. In some respects, I think that's her serving. Although, of course, what she became, you guys know I've said this, I believe she's the most important person for us. Look, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, all these people that were named, Joshua's not in there. Rahab is. It's just a beautiful story. And so, uh, I think we can look, look at that title of Rahab the prostitute and understand what it really is, it's Rahab who was the prostitute who was redeemed and restored and made someone new. And I imagine she was okay with it to a certain degree because she loved to proclaim, let me tell you what God did for me. I don't know if that satisfies every concern about how she's called that over and over again, but that's the way that I see it. So, Let's switch gears. So we talked about, we learned about somebody... And the story, his name was Aiken, and he was naughty. Remember the story of him? He oh, kept yeah. the things, and he did not listen, and he did not follow what God uh, had commanded them to do. And so interestingly, First Chronicles 2.7 calls Aiken the troubler of Israel, who broke faith in the matter of the devoted thing. What was the devoted thing? We, so, this is a three, two-parter. Good. The devoted thing was, if you remember in Joshua, the command was, go and take 
It all needs to be destroyed. So all the spoils from Jericho were devoted to destruction. God commanded that all of it was to be destroyed in Joshua 7. This wasn't just some sort of, by the way, let me just see if you guys are willing to not pick up the gold. This wasn't some sort of test of their faithfulness. There was a specific reason. There could have been many reasons why everything in Jericho needed to be utterly destroyed. Maybe to limit the influence of the culture. Perhaps there was disease. Matter of fact, we have evidence of the fact that there were other times where Israel did not follow God's command and they inherited diseases. Whatever it is, there was a reason why everything in Jericho needed to be devoted to destruction. In fact, I think we can infer that most of Israel knew the practical reasons why God gave that command. Because if you think about it, only one person violated it. Tens of thousands of people, and none of them were tempted to do what Achan did. So I I believe, and this is me inferring or speculating, I believe when God gave the command, it wasn't like, okay, whatever you say, God. I think they all said, you know what, that makes sense. That's a rational command, God. You're right. We're not going to take those devoted things because these are the dangers if we took them. I believe most of Israel knew these practical reasons, even though they're not listed in the scripture. But one man thought it was worth the risk. We don't know what the impact of what Achan took besides just the the battle against I and all that stuff, but here's what we know. We get hints later on about the consequences of that decision and other decisions later on. Remember when there was a situation near the end where the three and a half tribes were being confronted by the rest of them? Did you guys build a false altar? Do you guys understand? We're still not over the consequences of the sin of Achan. And what happened at the other place? Do you remember, remember? And they listed two stories about how they were still struggling with the physical, spiritual consequences of what happened. I laid that out for you in the sermon during that week. So they were serious about it. So we know that there were some specific reasons why those things in Jericho were devoted to destruction. And that's why they're called the devoted things in Chronicles. But it's the heart. So that message I think that was such a profound that passage was probably the most profound moment for me in the whole series the, the story of the three tribes right the Reubenites the Gadites and the half of Manasseh the ride or die right mm-hmm. were they the ride or die they were and they built an altar and their brothers came and accused them full force leveled an accusation at them Now, what I think is really interesting about that is they, not only was the accusation 100% incorrect, why that story was so impactful for me is uh, the spiritual wisdom and the maturity and the grace in which they responded, right? They demonstrated all of the fruits of the spirit. So the response, actually I had had that in here, um, Israel is completely incorrect. They went and falsely accused brothers. How many of us have been falsely accused of something? That's such an amazing feeling, right? We all love it. That's why it jumped out at me. But instead of clapping back, zero to Hulk smash, whatever their trigger is, they said, no. They met it with this response. First of all, God knows why we did what we did. They knew, God knew, why they did what they did, but then they basically said, no, we did it from fear that in time to come, your children won't say to our children these same accusations. They built it for them. Because it's almost like this ride-or-die troop was so faithful to serving, but they also had the spiritual wisdom and maturity around them to know that the rest of Israel, who consistently demonstrated that they would fall off the rails, 
all the time, right? That this group of people knew that they built this altar as a reminder, the next time you guys come at us, we want you to remember that we've always been here. So they had this foresight to know that it was gonna happen again, generation after generation after generation. That's, that moment for me that week made me wish that I had sometimes a quarter of the spiritual wisdom and maturity, first of all, to keep my mouth shut. Um, when I th- and it made me even think about like the gifts of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, mercy, faith, something. I don't even know them because I don't have most of them. (laughs) But yet we all get them, right, when we're given the gift of faith. And I thought that story was so particularly beautiful in such a moment that stopped me in my tracks. It says, no, you can can bring accusations all the time, but let's just wait and have a response that is grounded in our faith. And it teaches people why we do things or why we have, you know, why we've built an altar it's a moment, it was, a, it was such a beautiful moment that could have been handled by many of us so very differently. Like mm. Israel was going to go to war with them for no reason. And yeah. they just hung in there, the ride or die, demonstrating that they're really ride or die of God, first and foremost. Yep. yep. Agreed. You ready for the next question? Yes. Okay. Do you guys want a good one or a bad one? Hard one? Okay. They're all hard. We already did that one. Uh, oh, this is a good one. Joshua 5, when the angel commander of God's army appeared, right, the warrior God appeared before Joshua, and he asked him if uh, he was there for him, like, are you here for me, or are you like for, a, for us or against yeah. us, right? That would have been like a terrifying moment. Yeah. Joshua fell at his feet and worshiped. Another <laughs> translation says reverenced. Then he tells Joshua to take off his sandals because the ground he's standing on is holy. Why was that ground holy? Okay, so to understand this whole angel commander of the army of the Lord that Joshua faces, we have to go uh, fast forward or rewind to our last series on Revelation. The, the angel commander that Joshua sees is the same one that John sees. It's described exactly the same with the sword. It is our Jesus. Joshua saw oh. Jesus. Yes. Do it one more time. Joshua saw Jesus. The ground, this is beautiful, the ground is holy because it's the very presence of God. But here's what's beautiful. In Joshua, the story is the land is holy because it's been given to you as an inheritance. But when John saw Jesus with the sword the same way that Joshua did, it's the same. if you look at the descriptions, they're almost identical. It's beautiful, right, how the scripture's connected In Revelation, the coming of Jesus fills the whole earth, not just the land of Israel. So the holy ground is not just Canaan. I know there are some people who want to believe that, you know, one day that Israel is going to be restored in Jerusalem. Israel is not the point anymore. It's the whole earth. God's presence fills the entire earth as he dwells with us his people forever. The point is this, he redeems all of creation and because he is God and his presence fills the entire earth when he returns, the whole earth is holy ground. So what Joshua got was just a foreshadow of what we're gonna get when we see the angel commander. So that's the difference. So it's the same person. Joshua saw Jesus, which by the way, they have the same name, Jesus, Joshua, Joshua, Jehovah is salvation. 
Joshua saw Joshua, right? It's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. Good question. Why take off the shoes, though? Uh, I think that's more, that would be more ceremonial or symbolic. Because when, of o- OT? Yes, because of the OT. Yeah. Don't wear shoes in the Old Testament. No, that's not what it means. <laughs> so... Uh, is that it? Do we have one more? Or do we, or do, you have, do we have one more? Or is that it? Do you want one more or no? I mean, uh, it's 11.30. Well, so, so let me do this then. Instead of taking another one. Well, it's 11.30. <clears throat> yeah, so, so let me take Half another one. to go to brunch. It is, yes, I'm, I'm hungry too. And the kickoff's in 90 minutes. But listen, so, so here's what I want to say. I'm glad we got to do a last week on Joshua because it kind of ended and it's, it's kind of weird to end abruptly and go into James and I'm excited about James, but I, I feel like just like Revelation was pretty uh, watershed moment for our church, the book of Joshua has been pretty important for us, right? We learned that like, you know, the, some lessons we're going to con- carry with us, ride or die, Mount Lockwood Ridge and, and things like that. There's just so amazing things that we learned in this 20, 24 week study in the book of Joshua. You can go back and, and watch them again on YouTube or whatever, but I want you to see, I want to make sure that you understand in case you haven't noticed it yet, the commission that God gave Joshua, go into the land, do everything I've commanded and I won't leave you or forsake you. It's the exact same thing that Jesus said to the disciples. Go into the land, teach everything I've commanded you, and don't worry, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So the promise to Joshua and to the disciples and to us is the same. So we too will continue at Grace Life to go into the land, proclaiming the truth to those whom God has called out of darkness and into light. Okay? Heavenly Dad, we want to thank you so much for the opportunity you give us to come together and, and fellowship in community around your word. I imagine this is very much like it used to be in the, old, in the first century church when people would come together in community and discuss the word just like this. Lord, we're so grateful that the book of Joshua, although it seems to be a, a neglected book in many respects, it's such a powerful connector to what you were doing in the old covenant and to how you're doing it now in the new. Continue to give us the boldness that we need to go into the land, the discipline to do everything you've commanded, to be ride or die for you and for our church family. Lord, as we continue to through our worship and proclamation, draw people here to Mount Lockwood Ridge that need to hear the message of hope and redemption and mercy and grace. Lord, thank you that you give us a sister like Rahab who shows us your power of restoration and redemption and transformation. And Lord, over the coming weeks as we go into James and we test our faith and see if it's real and see if it stands up to the test, I pray that you would continue to bless us with more stories of people who you are calling out of the darkness into light through the gospel that we are proclaiming. And we are thankful that just like with Joshua and just like with the disciples, 